Hi, this is Wes Corbett, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. So my guest on the podcast this week is Wes Corbett. Um, Wes is the current banjo player for the Sam Bush Band, but he's played with plenty of other people along the way, and we'll talk about a bit of that in time. But what I'm really keen to talk to Wes about is his recent album, Cascade, and a book of transcriptions of that album that I think when you're listening to that will probably be released today. Um, so it's to 26, is that right, Wes? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Excellent. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Um, one of the, the sort of most common themes that's come out of speaking to people in the world of bluegrass is that nearly everybody had somebody musical in their family, it seems. Mm. Um, and for a lot of people, that was parents and siblings. And for you, it seems it was your grandfather sort of spotted a bit of musical ability in you when you were pretty young. Yeah, my grandfather and also my dad's brother, Fred, w- was a banjo player. Um, so he, he uh, especially once I started playing banjo, was a big influence as well. But my mom's dad um, was the head of the music department of a small college in Ohio um, for about 25 years. He was a classical trumpet player, pianist, and conductor. And um, my mom grew up, you know, playing piano, and uh, she was a professional modern dancer. So there's a lot of, and my dad was a potter. There's <laughs> a lot of like art in the yeah. family, you know? Um, but yeah, the joke was that I came out of the womb humming. <laughs> and it was the piano that you started with at, I believe the age of two and a half. That's correct. Yeah. I started with, wow. uh, with, with Suzuki method piano at two and a half, which, you know, is a, a really lucky thing. Um, and it, you know, it, it, to be totally honest, like the, the piano was never, my favorite, like I wasn't super passionate about it. Once I found the banjo at 14, um, it was kind of off to the races and, and I was able, I think to absorb a lot of banjo stuff pretty quickly because I'd played piano for so long, you know, because yeah. just as a, as a young kid, I was like so inundated with music. Um, so I'm really thankful um, for that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm always jealous of people who learned piano as their first instrument. I, I think I was supposed to learn piano as my first instrument, but didn't really want to. So I learned the drums. And um, mm. just having that visual understanding of harmony from the start. And, you know, it's, it must be a, a great grounding for them, whatever you want to go and do from there. Yeah. You know, people always say that. And I, because I played only classical music, um, I, I actually think about music theory all in like banjo fingerboard, like mm. what I almost call like banjo geometry uh, <laughs> for better or worse, it, it, you know, uh, but that being said, um, a lot of people who like didn't know that I started on piano have told me that I play banjo like a pianist. Um, maybe the, the most, uh, Dave Cinco, who's the front of house engineer for punch brothers and also yeah. a, a kind of legendary audio engineer in general, he's mixed and mastered and engineered a bunch of things that I've been on and produced. He said that to me back in 2010 on the session that we met on, he was like, has everybody ever told you you play banjo like a pianist? <laughs> like, I guess I do. I don't know. Yeah. I guess you don't know what you would sound like if you hadn't. Um, right. And- and then it was sort of hearing Bela Fleck when you were 14 that sort of turned you onto the banjo. That's right. Yeah. I heard him. Um, my brother and I found the original David Grisman quintet record in my parents' collection. And actually only a few tracks worked. It was kind of damaged. And so uh, one of my brother's friends, this is like an obtuse story, but one of my brother's friend's dads was a big acoustic music fan. And so he lent my brother that record along with a bunch of others. And one of them was Bela Fleck's Double Time, cool. which is a, a duets record. And that that's yeah. really what kicked it off for me um, was just listening to that record on repeat and maybe a couple days in, like started to ask my parents if I could play banjo. And what was the reaction to that? Um, my mom who had taken me to like every single piano lesson for my whole <laughs> childhood and, and Suzuki method, the parents are really involved. Like, you know, for the first number of years, the parents learn everything that the kids are learning so that they can help them practice at home right. really effectively. Um, you know, so I, 
it was not my mom's favorite thing in the world. It, it took her a minute to, to, um, acclimate, let's say. <laughs> um, but my dad, you know, my dad, uh, went along with it and, um, they kind of traded spaces a little bit in, in that my dad started taking me to like to banjo lessons and he took me to my first bluegrass festival and, you know, kind of, I guess like, um, helicopter parented in a, in, but like in a lovely way, you know, would yeah, like yeah. kind of shove me into a jam circle at like 14 or 15, you know, <laughs> um, you know, cause that's intimidating at first, even though everybody was so, so supportive and nice, it, it like coming from the classical world, the idea that I could just like step into a circle of people who are playing around a campfire or whatever at a, at a festival, um, was really foreign to me and, and, uh, kind of nerve wracking at first, but everybody was so supportive. Um, and I made so many friends that I'm, you know, still really close with now in those first couple years. Um, Alex Hargraves, Dominic Leslie, Jake Jolliffe, um, Sarah Rose, that kind of whole crew of people, Simon Christman and the Claridges, uh, all these people, you know, that I've known essentially since I was a kid and are still, really close friends, Brittany Haas, Paul Cohort. It sounds like um, particularly meeting Simon Christman was quite a pivotal moment for you. You two played together a lot by the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah. We played together so much. So Simon, um, who, for people who maybe don't know who he is, he's um, this just like transcendent hammered dulcimer player. Um, and he's, uh, six something like six and a half years older than me. So we were never in school together, but he grew up on Bainbridge Island, um, where I grew up, which is, uh, in Washington state across water from Seattle. And I actually saw him open for Bill Frizzell when I was 14. I think I'd been playing for like six months, maybe or something. Um, and he was already really, really good. Um, and, I ran into him at this little uh, vegetarian Vietnamese stand in on on in downtown Winslow, and he gave me a business card, uh, you know, which which I now know he has told me is the only business card he ever gave out. <laughs> and actually, the idea that he even had business cards is like amazing. <laughs> I mean, that might be the only Hammer Delsimer business card in existence <laughs> probably probably but yeah so we started playing together all the time and um yeah he's just he's an amazing musician uh a really great composer such an incredible ensemble player um and yeah we we made a ton of music together i'm i'm so thankful to have had him as a a friend and mentor from the beginning and having him on on cascade on the first kind of you know, my first record of instrumentals um that's mostly just a bluegrass you know a standard bluegrass instrumentation um just felt really right to me you know and that must be an interesting like any acoustic duo playing i love because you get to hear both instruments and the players get to explore things a bit more and you know there's a magic in duet recordings um but it must be a really interesting mix playing a banjo and a hammered dulcimer because they sort of occupy the same territory in some ways um they've got you know there's a similar sort of feel to the sound of both of them yeah and it's a blessing and a curse right i mean because there's there's an amazing blend to it but they're they're both clustered kind of in the the mids uh, you know the mid range of of what those ensembles are typically like what a bluegrass ensemble is capable of um and <clears throat> yeah so i think uh as i've gotten older y you know as i produce records for people um make my own records play with sam context is everything right it's so like whatever sort of sonic ecosystem that you create um, it, you need to work within the limitations and, and boundaries of that ecosystem. But if you use it well, it can still feel like a whole world. You just have to be mm -hmm. really conscious of what you're doing. Yeah. And I think that you can, you can certainly hear, I mean, maybe I'm biased because I know that as a, a fact, because I've read it, but you, it feels like you and Simon have played together a lot. When I listen to recordings, if you play, there seems to be a you know, there's any, anybody who's had a long-standing musical relationship with somebody else and knows how to communicate without really saying anything. 
will know what that feels like, but it, you know, it doesn't, it, it's sometimes you can, you can just tell from the music that people have listened to each other a lot as well as played together a lot. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no one that I've encountered that I can play a unison with more easily than Simon. Like if we're going to double a melody or something together, I mean, there are, there are moments on our duo record that still kind of blow my mind. You know, when I, when I listen to them, um, just because the unisons are so tight and I'm not, this is not something that I'm like trying to toot my own horn or something. Cause it's not something that I, you know, comes as easily with lots of other musicians that I know really well and, and would even say I have like a, a deep musical relationship with, but there are those few people, you know, that, mm. yeah, that it, we've just spent so much time together. There's so much shared musical and life experience. Yeah, and and so you played a lot with Simon, and then sort of your your career sort of moved through a few different groups after that, and they they sort of feel like distinct, quite distinct things. As the Beaters, which I've heard you describe before as almost sort of chamber like in in sort of texture, um, yeah. And Joy Kill Sorrow is much more of a pop feel, much more sort of mainstream, I guess. Um, sure. And then obviously you played with Molly Tuttle, you played with Sam Bush. There's a lot of a lot of ground covered. Um, and I'd be interesting to talk about some of that maybe in the context of, of Cascade because, the, I mean, there's so many things I find interesting about Cascade. Um, and But one of them is certainly the idea of um, it, it's work that's been put together over a long time in terms of the music. But it also sounds like you spent a lot of time arranging um, the music for the players you've chosen to play it. And... We'll come on and talk about those players in a minute, but I, I was really interested to know to what degree the music on Cascade is arranged versus how much improvisation there is, and is is it because presumably beaters as a chamber feel was slightly more composed than improvised, and sort of wondered where where it sits in that mix. Yeah, well, um, I, I feel like Cascade in a lot of ways is, is sort of a synthesis of everything I've done that came before it. Um, and, and clearly, you know, an ode to, um, Bela's instrumental acoustic records, like uh, absolutely a hundred percent. Like those are the, those are the records that really made me want to play banjo. Um, but in, in terms of how much is arranged, how much is improvised, um, I guess what I attempted to do is, hire musicians for the record that I really trust their musicality. And I also really know their musicianship well enough, um, to kind of put them in situations where they're, where I know they're going to succeed and even make choices that like surprise me. You know, I, I, I kind of, so I think the easiest way to describe the arrangement process for cascade was, just trying to create situations where I knew all of those players would shine, which is not mm. hard <laughs> with that ensemble. Right. But yeah. there, everybody has strengths and weaknesses or, or just like sort of innate stylistic things about their sound. Mm. Um, so like I knew, let's say like, since we've been talking about Simon, there's a, a tune on the record called three trees, which is named for three Douglas fir trees that grew on the property that I grew up in, uh, on Bainbridge. And, uh, I knew that I wanted to kind of feature Simon a little more on that tune. Cause it, it just, you know, it just makes sense. Um, and I wrote kind of these longer chord changes that, that are related to the rest of the tune, but they also kind of function, um, as an independent thing as well. Um, and just, let Simon do his thing. Mm. And like every take of it was beautiful, you know? Um, I, it, so it's moments like that, right. Where it's like, okay, I know if I write, if I write this thing, um, and tell everybody that they need to like open up and give Simon space and trickle back in, that's all I'm going to have to say. Mm. Right. It's moments like that. We didn't really have to work on it any more than me saying that. And sometimes, honestly, when I, I, when I felt like I had done my job really well in terms of, um, 
not even writing out charts that have like everybody drops out here or whatever. It's like some of that stuff just happens naturally because of how it's arranged. It just feels like that's what should happen. And in a lot of ways, that's my goal. My goal is to put a chart in front of people. They know the melodies already. We talk about the arrangement once or twice through and we play it. And hopefully it kind of plays itself. Mm. Right. Cause those are the things that end up feeling the most natural. And of course there are like, like a band like the bee eaters or punch brothers, um, where so many moments of the music are, are like, you know, combed through to the micro. Um, and that's such a beautiful thing too, but given how much time we had to make cascade, um, and just the kind of record, like what I wanted it to sound like, I wanted it to have a, a, a slightly looser, you know, uh, friends playing music together mm. vibe. Um, so I purposefully arranged things that way. If that is, sorry, it's a long answer, but no, no, I, I mean, I, I love that. And it reminds me, there's a, a quote, um, Craig Havighurst has a podcast called the string and he interviewed Baylor Fleck about, my bluegrass heart. And he mm. said, um, what he said was personnel is personality. It is the art. And he was sort of talking about how he'd, how Baylor had arranged certain musicians and picked them for certain tunes and saying that almost picking the right people and putting them in the room is, is almost an act of creation in itself. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's very true. I mean, even, even, um, so the, the band on the record is really consistent. Um, but the mandolin slot on the record is it's either Casey Campbell or Sierra hall. And they both have really different sounds, right? Sierra is kind of coming from like the more sort of Chris Thiele style, like ultra, ultra clean. Yeah. Um, and amazing, you know, sort of laser beam kind of thing. And Casey has this much more old school, um, Thing, but he also just has this uh like just beautiful emotional depth to his playing and they're they're both incredible right and and so when i was thinking about who i wanted to have on what track um it would have been easy like the opening track which is kind of the the shreddiest fastest thing called boss fight it would have been easy to have have sierra on that track and she mm. would have you know played something amazing i have no doubt but having Casey on that track anchored it to making it feel a little bit more trad, a little bit more old school, right? In the way he plays rhythm, in his tone, in his choices as a soloist, all of those things, you know. So even just changing one person out of this ensemble, like fundamentally alters the sound. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so do you want to... So talk us through who else you chose for this project then, because it's a it's a wonderful lineup of musicians. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Paul Coert, who's a bass player from Punch Brothers, and actually my neighbor, <laughs> uh, one of my best friends who hang out a lot. Um, he played bass. Uh, he is, I, I mean, I think probably most people who are listening to this podcast know um, how virtuosic he is. But again, it's not just about, there are plenty of virtuosic musicians in the world, plenty of like mm. shredder musicians, like I guess virtuosic from a technical perspective. Um, but Paul, uh, on top of being that also has this just, um, amazing musicality to him, like a, a real true sort of almost bottomless emotional depth to his playing. Um, so Paul's he's playing. He's, it's know, amazing. I've, yeah. I've listened to Punch Brothers a load and I've seen them live a few times. And given the company he's in on stage, I never failed to come away with a higher appreciation of how good a bass player he is. Like, and he's surrounded by some of the finest musicians you could be surrounded by. And he still shines because he just, oh, yeah. there's something yeah. like deep and elegant about the way he plays. Absolutely. Yeah. That that's exactly what it is. It, he is, um, just kind of the consummate musician. I mean, if you put him in a, in an orchestra, he would also sound transcendent, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, he's amazing. So having him on the record, um, and I rarely told any of them what to play, especially Paul and Paul definitely takes some pretty big liberties. I mean, if you look at, if you look at how things are charted versus what 
what bass lines he actually chose to play. You know, he's, he's making these like really beautiful melodic choices, um, as opposed to just, you know, whatever, playing, playing root and fifth, playing just like shooting for always for chord tones. He's, he's always making melody. Um, and it makes the record so alive and special, you know, just from the bottom up. Mm. Um, and then Alex Hargraves plays fiddle. Like I said, I've known him since we were kids. He's quite a bit younger than me. So he was in middle school. I think when I was like, he was maybe I was 14 and he was nine. I forget <laughs> like something around in there, but he was already so incredible. Um, and he's only, you know, gotten more and more amazing. Um, it, you know, he's, he's always been the fiddle player I was going to hire for this record. Um, and again, you know, this, this kind of magical combination of truly virtuosic, but Alex really plays pretty reined in on the record. Um, you know, I mean, cause he has like kind of bottomless chops, especially from a harmonic perspective. Um, but he's always making the choice that, makes sense for the tune makes sense for the context of what's going on around him. Um, and then, like I said, Sierra hall and Casey Campbell both play mandolin on, um, four tracks each, I believe it's been a few years now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, they're, they're both incredible in their own right. Like I said, Sierra being this kind of, um, incredibly pristine, precise mandolin player and, and Casey having this much more kind of rooted traditional sound, but, but with a really, uh, an ability to kind of meld that into any context into a mod more modern context. Um, then Chris Eldridge played guitar and produced the record. He's the guitar player from punch brothers. Um, and there's something about, we'll talk about, I'll talk about Critter as a producer in a second, but since we're talking about people playing on the record, there's something about the way that Critter plays rhythm that brings out the bluegrass in me, like no other guitar player I've ever met. Um, like his, his rhythm playing is just magical. I, I mean, not even, you know, not to mention his like amazingly sort of, uh, on the edge, explorative lead playing, but mm. his rhythm playing is just incredible. Um, the, the feel of it, the choices that he makes, um, he kind of occupies as a rhythm player, a pretty acute amount of sonic space in a way that as a banjo player and as a banjo player who, who likes to make a like darker sound, on the banjo, it, it, the way Critter plays rhythm also never feels overbearing to me, you know, B because if you play really, really kind of jangly on a guitar, hmm. you can produce a ton of high end. And unless you're playing a really, really bright, really, really loud banjo, you can get eaten up real fast. Um, but Chris's dad, is a banjo player, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, a, an amazing one at that. So I think Chris just inherently grew up with, with this sense of like where rhythm guitar was supposed to belong. Well, I remember I heard in another interview, you said, um, I've got the quote written down, so I didn't want to forget it. It says playing really, really quiet, slow material is actually my favorite thing to do on the banjo. And if playing and obviously there's a couple of tracks stanley walsh for courtney on cascade that, yeah. that is very much in evidence um and if you're being played all over you can't do that can you no not at all and you know uh, those two tunes are perfect examples of 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 critter helping me do that you know um but also on the latter stuff too even, even if it's you know whatever it's boss vice he, he's He's playing louder for sure, but the, the amount of space that he occupies is very acute and ultra supportive. And it's interesting because when I interviewed him, we were talking about Tony Rice and he said much as he loves Tony's lead playing and it's incredible. It's the rhythm playing Tony's mm -hmm. rhythm playing that, you know, he would take all day, every day. Um, and you know, it's, it's interesting to see that that's something that's sort of really developed in his own playing as a, maybe as a result, or maybe just, you know, coincidentally, but 
it's always it's always nice to hear people talk about a guitarist rhythm playing because it's not the first thing people talk about generally, but it's it's nearly all of what you do as a guitar player. Right. Well, and, and as any, you know, as a musician in bluegrass, it's 90% of what you're doing, at least 95% of what you're spending your time doing. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think Critter really worked very hard to, to make the sound that he's made. And, and also, um, you know, I think punch brothers has just can, is, knowing um critter and paul and know them pretty well these days you know that band kind of has just continued to be a boot camp for them (laughs) you know i I mean how could it not be they they kind of reinvent themselves every time they make a record and it almost almost feels listening to them and listening to those five instruments like um this i don't know if this will make sense but like things have been arranged for voices rather than Mm. Like each instrument and each player on that instrument have a voice and they're arranging for the voices they've got rather than here's a guitar part that any guitar player would play. It feels like it's, you know, it's it's very attuned to what they do and who they are and what they're trying to achieve at any given time because it also changes drastically. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's very true. And, and you know, I guess coming back to that theme of of um, what Bela was saying too, right, that you're you're arranging for personalities like you're arranging for sounds that people make inherently um yeah yeah. and i think that's it isn't it it's um like anything that is a team like sport or music or whatever if you're putting people together to work together and as you said earlier to sort of give them a chance to succeed then how you put people together is you know is all important you can't just chuck somebody in because they're great but they're not going to work with everybody else yeah Exactly. And, and I, you know, I think I, I also just, I hired the musicians that for cascade that, uh, I love playing with and that make me feel like a better, you know, I'm surprised by myself when I play with them. And it's, it's, it's definitely interesting just seeing the amount of people's projects Sierra Hull has got involved with over the past few years because as a mm-hmm. singer songwriter solo artist force of nature in her own right um she spends a lot of time playing for other people and in the service of other people's music which i don't know if that is a rare thing uh, it seems common for instrumentalists to cover a lot of ground but as a leader of yeah. her own band it seems unusual she, and that tells me a huge amount about how respected she is as a player oh yeah i mean uh i feel completely confident saying that Sierra is, is one of the best musicians of my generation without a doubt. I, I mean, she is incredible. She's so inspiring. So, and just like lovely to work with and hang out with. She's hilarious. <laughs> She's so great. So it'd be, I'd be interested to talk a little bit about, about um, Chris Eldridge having did he produce or co-produce the record with you? Um, he co-produced the record with me, um, but you know, a big portion of, I mean, we, so we did, uh, let's see, probably half a dozen, three or four hour long pre-production sessions, just the two of us where I, I would just, you know, throw some charts in front of him. Um, and we would work through the tunes at first. It was kind of just working on, um, the tunes without thinking about the ensemble, um, quite as much just working on kind of them structurally from the foundation up. Um, and then, and so it was so amazing to have, have him to bounce all this stuff off of whether it's chord changes or just how the tunes are constructed. Like, you know, what section goes, where does this need another section? Like what kind of section, what should it be? All of those choices were mostly made with, with critter. Um, and then as the session got closer and closer, uh, we started, I started arranging stuff. Um, and we would actually play through it like just as a duo, but you know, imagining essentially adding in all the other instrumentation stuff and, and timing things honestly, to make sure that, because we only had, uh, two rehearsal days and then five days in the studio to make this record. And, you know, um, the material's not like the craziest thing ever, but it's certainly not simple. Some of the tunes are, 
but some of it really isn't. Um, so I really wanted it to be as fully formed as I could possibly make it before, before we started those rehearsals even. And, you know, I had varying levels of success with that. Some of them were, were pretty much done like right out of the gate. And some of them kind of needed to be taken apart completely missed, missed the mark. And that's just, you need to like, uh, I guess like remove your ego from it entirely. Right. And just listen to like, is this working or not? And if it's not working, then what's the solution? Or at least what's a solution. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the interesting thing about having a co-producer or a producer when it's your project. Because you obviously produced, you know, you produced Bronwyn Keith Hines' um, album. You've done production yourself. You understand yeah. how it works. But it's it's um, it's um a it's a strange job to define music producer sometimes, isn't it? Because it can be a variety of roles at a variety of times. And I remember you saying something along the lines of a good producer knows when not to have an opinion if they haven't actually got one. Whereas some people feel the need to insert themselves into a project. Um, yeah. A bit like, you know, a theatre director might need to slap themselves all over Shakespeare to prove they've done some work. Um, where what it needs is for you to get out of the way and just tell the story, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And that that's something I try to keep in mind the whole time I'm producing is like, should I be talking right now? <laughs> right. And, and Critter's amazing with that, too. Um he was great in studio. He was great when we were working on stuff uh, beforehand. He was um, incredibly helpful with the mixing and mastering process, for sure. I mean, he has wild ears uh, for for tone capture and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I also very much encouraged uh, dialogue with everybody else that was hired for the project. You know, um, they all, I mean, I because they all write music. They've all made a ton of cool instrumental music and vocal mm -hmm. music. Um, and their opinions matter to me, you know? Uh, so if, if someone had an idea during the rehearsal process or when we were recording, uh, it's always worth trying. And that, that sort of point about tone capture is a really interesting one. Cause with acoustic music, sort of the sound spending the time to, if you've only got five days, knowing how long to spend getting the sounds in the first place, because ultimately it's worth the investment, but you haven't got five days to spend getting the sounds. So that must no, have been you like, you know, an interesting part of the, the process. Yeah. Well, so we recorded with, um, Ben Surratt, who's an engineer here in Nashville. He's actually, um, Missy Rains, the bass player, uh, her husband, okay. he's, uh, a, you know, really well-known, uh, engineer here in town. Um, and a great one. And he has a studio, um, and, uh, but we, we, we spent a couple hours getting tones. Critter also has a pretty, pretty impressive collection of microphones and preamps that we, you know, had access to and, and brought a few of those things in, um, mostly just for me, <laughs> uh, you know, like whatever, I guess it's the one time where like all the nicest gear is processing the banjo. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that it, it is really important, at least in my opinion. Um, I, I, when I'm producing records, I really also like to spend the time in the beginning to get things captured well from the get go, mm. because it only causes you more problems down the line, whether that's making choices on, you know, if you're listening back in the control room during the session and things just don't sound that great, it's not like nobody's going to come into the control room and be excited. Right. Um, or if you're on headphones, the tones in your headphones need to be good. Like mm. that's how you're making the music. So if it sounds bad in your headphones, like to have to like power through that is not, not a thing for me. Um, and of course, like when you get to the mixing and mastering, uh, stages of things, if the tones are good going in, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing I'd like to ask about as well, because this is sort of the timely thing now is the release of the book of transcriptions for this, because it feels like more than just a book of transcriptions. It feels like, um, you know, I know it's sort of part of a, a quest to elevate the banjo a little bit and, you know, give it a, a sort of 
maybe guitar and fiddle and mandolin are instruments that have classical repertoire for them in various forms and various degrees and banjo doesn't occupy the same sort of space um and uh, yeah it's been interested to hear sort of about the book of transcriptions and the process but also what bigger picture that's part of as well because it's it's more than just a book of tunes for one record isn't it yeah so uh, growing up um reading music was never my strong point and switching to the banjo and switching to reading tablature really was kind of the same for me. My teacher, Dave Keenan started me on tab and actually his tabs are really clear. He, he hand wrote them, but they're, they're like, they're really beautiful actually, <laughs> but learning from some of the other tab books that were available, um, as someone who kind of, you know, uh, yeah, just like struggles to read things that especially that aren't like clear on a page. A lot of banjo books were really just straight up hard or almost impossible for me to read. Um, and so I mostly just learned everything by ear, which is fine, right? I mean, it's part of why I ended up, you know, bailing on classical music and ended up in a, in a music that's mostly based around an oral tradition. But, um, when the idea occurred to me that maybe I should make a banjo tab book, I honestly can't remember um, if it was sort of my own idea or if it was uh, people asking me online or something or in person, if I was going to, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I decided to do it. And I, I called Adam Larrabee was my first call. He's the editor of the book. Um, he's a banjo player in a band called Love Cannon. Um, he's also the head of a guitar department in at a university in Virginia. And just like one of the best musicians I know um, on guitar and can do everything that he can do on guitar on banjo, which is amazing, including like tr- sight read, in standard notation, anything. Wow. <laughs> um, so he was my first call of, you know, I knew I would need help and it just, cause it's a, it's kind of a monstrous undertaking to transcribe all those solos, get mm. all the heads right. Um, and just make, try to edit out as many of the, you know, typos and everything out of it as possible. Um, but when I reached out to Adam, he was like, well, it's, a, it, you know, it's amazing that you're asking me to do this because Jake Sheps and I, who I work with plenty through a camp called Banjo Summit that we, uh, that I'm on the board of, um, Jake and Adam had been talking about wanting to start a, a sort of publication portion of sort of the greater umbrella of Banjo Summit. Um, called, it's called Round Window Institute and, and the, uh, the book came out under round window press. Um, and their goal was like, can we make a tab book that like kind of is a big step up in quality, right? That doesn't have a ton of errors in it. That's really beautiful. Uh, that, you know, is it's easy to read. And that was a big, that was one of my big (laughs) contributions. Just be like, this has to be easy to read. And, um, so we worked, I mean, we worked for, yikes, I don't, I'm so bad at dates and it's back in like the murky depths of Mm -hmm. 2021 in there somewhere. But I mean, we worked for eight months on, you know, on that six months on that book, getting all the tablatures right. And part of why it took so long is because we were kind of coming up with the standard of where we wanted things to be for all of the other books that are, that are to come that are planned. Bela's bluegrass heart is the next one that's coming out. Um, and Adam and I have also talked about wanting to, um, write a book of, uh, like kind of intermediate banjo duets, speaking of kind of adding to the sort of pedagogy of the banjo. That's another Mm -hmm. thing that doesn't really exist. Um, but yeah, I mean, those were the main goals. We also, and, and in working on that, we ended up even changing a little bit of the iconography and tablature, but, and at first I was a little nervous about it. Um, we were just kind of cleaning it up, honestly. Uh, but I was a little nervous about it. We, we sent it around to 10 peers, like, you know, Eli Gilbert, and Nat Torkington and 
Tony Trishka, a bunch of people kind of, you know, got like a PDF copy of the book. And, um, the amazing thing is we, we didn't even have a key together yet. Right. For, for the tablature and no one had any issues with anything. Like they all were just like, Oh yeah. I mean, I noticed. So what we did is in tablature, typically you would have, um, for hammer ons, pull offs and slides, the symbol would all be the same. Right. But hmm. then there's a little letter above it, either a P an S or an H. And what we decided to do was get rid of that letter actually, and use, uh, like the standard kind of, um, <laughs> it's like curved line, right. For hammer ons and pull offs. And what fret you're coming from and going to tells you if it's a hammer on or pull off, <laughs> you right? Can't, can't pull like, to a high it's <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So it's redundant. And then same with the slide. The slides are either uh, a line moving up is a slide up a line moving down is a, is a slide down. And again, the fret numbers tell you what, so it's not, it's not like a huge change, but because banjo is so full of ornamentations like that, mm. Right. Sometimes tablature can just get so cluttered, like left hand fingering, right hand fingering, uh, numbers everywhere, and then tiny letters everywhere, too. Right. It can just get so cluttered. So we really strived to clean up what I just talked about. Also, only include left and right hand fingerings where they were necessary. Right. Because cat, th this is a tab book that is not, um, a beginner tab book. Yeah. Right. And, and that's not to say that like there, there aren't plenty of things in there for like an intermediate player to, to, and, and up to get things out of, but like, you know, this is not the tab book to come to if you're wanting to learn cripple Creek or like learn your first roles. So there's, there's a certain amount of knowledge that like, you know, a forward roll is thumb index middle with your right hand, right? Those, those, you know, so, uh, it, it's operating under that assumption to some degree, but because my right hand is uh, very specific to me, there is quite a bit of information um, like right hand and left hand information put in there um, because I tend to lead a lot of passages uh, in single string with my index finger on the downbeat, as opposed to my thumb. Um, it's, it's kind of more like, whatever's going to be easiest. And it took me a long time to get to the sort of fluency level that I'm at with it now. Um, and it was really interesting, honestly, to transcribe all this stuff and look at these transcriptions and, and, uh, put all that fingering in cause it, it helped kind of, uh, codify a bunch of it for me too. Right. Because I, I mean, first and foremost, I'm, I'm a performer. I'm a player. I do like teach a lot of lessons and I teach at camps and I like, um, I guess I, I have like an educational role within my musicianship, but like I'm a performer at, at, I guess at my core. So there are a bunch of things that was like, Oh yeah, I guess that is how I'm doing that. <laughs> well, and it's analyzing how you do anything is, can be a strange process, can't it? Just to look at the details mm -hmm. and how you get between two places and when you actually see what you you know, it's I, when I first joined artist works, the student I had to record myself and send it into Brian Sutton. So he could, you know, help me just, just recording mm -hmm. it and looking at it helped me because you've like, Oh my God, I didn't know I did that. Like I thought I was doing this or, you know, it's yeah. yeah. And so that'd be, I mean, so doing the book of transcriptions for Baylor's record, will he work with you on that? Um, will Baylor? Yeah. Well, so Adam actually handled, you believe it or not, all of the transcriptions for that book, wow. um, which is crazy because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, is, that, I mean, it's what it's 17 tracks long and, you know, Bela takes like a bunch of long extended solos. There's like tunes that have, you know, five or six parts, mm. uh, like five or six sections. Um, so there's a lot, there is a ton of information going into that book, but Adam is one of the fastest transcribers I've ever met in my life. I mean, truly, I think he could have easily transcribed my entire record. If it had just been to standard notation, as opposed to tablature, he probably could have done it in a couple days. So, oh, yeah. um, Bayless book is in good hands. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, um, I've, I've seen some of the tab, you know, it's, it's beautiful. 
Um, I'm really excited to get my hands on the whole book. I'll be, uh, involved in some of the like layout process, although we were really, really lucky to have my book and Bela's book. And I think some other books in the future, Max Allard's new record is also, that's another book that's in the works. Um, my friend, Ty Nowicki, who is one of the, um, designers for penguin random house in New York. He's pretty high up in their design department. Um, I, my wife and I lived in New York for a while. Ty became a really close friend. And, you know, I, I kind of phoned a friend on, <laughs> on this book, you know, just because he laid out Cascade to the, the actual CD. Um, and also the duo record with Simon. He just has a, a really beautiful eye for design. And books are his, like, you know, his main bread and butter. Um, but I didn't think he would have time to do it. But he was so generous. And then he's actually agreed to do Bela's book too. Um, so, you know, a big portion of why the book looks so beautiful is thanks to him. In addition to how much work we put into making the tablature, right. Hmm. It's know? really interesting. Cause I, you know, I sort of haven't, I mean, when you talk about ornamentation there and just thinking about, you know, I'm used to reading guitar tab and mandolin tab. Um, but banjo is an instrument that I've never really played. And, it, it, it's natural when you talk about it, the amount of information that would be in there compared to some other forms of tab. And if you can strip 10% of that information out, cause it's superfluous, it's a genuine bit of clarity between you and playing the music, isn't it? It's it can make a massive difference. Absolutely. And also just making the choice that like, you're only going to include so many systems per page, right? That like that page count uh, isn't as important. We're not trying to make this book as cheaply as possible, mm. essentially. Right. Because like having really poorly planned page turns can also make the learning process really bad from a book. Right. I think we've all been there where like a section is, is cut in half in the worst way between two pages that don't face each other. You know, like, so we also just worked really hard on like, like m making it function that way. And, um, and I'm really interested yeah. in this, this, this idea that goes alongside the sort of improving quality of transcriptions, but also the sort of pedagogy of man, uh, sorry, banjo, um, but the history of it, as you talked about, you know, just even, even with bluegrass sort of flat picked instruments, there's, it's relatively, it's still a relatively young thing for, people to work out how to approach scales and chords and pick stroke direction and, and things like that. Um, and the banjo is, is probably, you know, because it doesn't have a classical history or, a, or something to draw on for that in a, in a sort of different, different place along that journey as well. And I'm just really interested in hearing about the wider drive to sort of elevate banjo as an instrument. Yeah. You know, it's, it's an, I think the thing, the only thing that I uh, want to preface with is that like elevates not quite the term I'd like to use. I mean, just because it, it feels inherently a little bit classist, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like in, 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 in that, like it, it means that like what has come before is lesser than or something, but, but that doesn't, you know, but as an instrument moves into, uh, more and more people learning from it and, and like sort of technical levels are raised higher and higher. Um, you know, there needs to be ways to write that down and mm. convey that information and standardize some of that language. Um, and, and doing that, uh, in a well formatted book is, is pretty much, you know, the way to do that. <laughs> Um, and you know, so uh, we've at Banjo Summit also like this book and that camp have, have kind of attempted to do that, that like there's kind of within our ecosystem, we're kind of standardizing, standardizing, like, this is what the tablature looks like. It's really clear. It's really easy to read. Like when we talk about this roll pattern or, or this type of syncopated thing, it's with this name. Um, right. And it's because those things just don't really exist. And, you know, you just, I guess, just have to 
pick a name and start calling it that. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a really interesting point about the sort of class implication of the word elevate, um, which is like the word that came to me. But you're totally right, because not only does it have that, but also on top of that sort of contextually, the banjo is the most sort of ridiculed of bluegrass instruments and players of the banjo and how it's been depicted at various points is sort of probably more important that language is chosen carefully around that instrument than anything else in a bluegrass band. Oh yeah. I mean, B banjo has a, um, a pretty rough history in America. You know, I mean, it, it, it is, uh, one of what theremin and banjo are technically the only like, uh, you know, American specific instruments. Um, but you know, I mean, black slaves in the South were recreating a number of instruments that they could no longer have the materials to make from West Africa. And that's how the banjo was born. The banjo was born out of the slave trade and was a black instrument for a long time. And it's been kind of appropriated multiple times by white, white culture in, uh, bad ways every time. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that, um, there, yeah, there's a weight to the banjo that not everybody even knows about at all. Um, that's, you know, if you're interested in like learning, uh, about American history, the, the banjo is actually, if you trace the history of the banjo, you can learn a huge portion of like colonial America to modern day. Um, yeah. So I, I think that I, I, it's something that, you know, I have been thinking about a lot and, um, and just trying to be conscious of, you know, even just with like, when I have a, a first lesson with a student now, you know, and I, I just teach online, um, but teaching private lessons, uh, it's part of my like initial spiel is like, Hey, do you know about the history of the instrument that you're playing? Cause I think it's really important. I think it's really important for people to just even understand that. Mm. Yeah, 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 and it's, and and I think that that is really interesting. Often, the story of a smaller thing as a way of learning the bigger arc of history is a fascinating thing in its own right. Anyway, you know, so it's taking the story of an instrument or of a human being or of a building or of, a, of anything can unlock the, the sort of much bigger structures of of the arc of history. Sometimes, um, and I think it's if you play an instrument, learning where it came from. It's fascinating regardless of where it came from and and how it's it's sort of traveled mm -hmm. to where it is but i think particularly pertinent for banjo you know in the place we are in history now where we understand how damaging much of what we did in the past was um sure it's yeah um so obviously the book's due out I think the book will be out the day this podcast is released. Um, the record's a little bit older than that. So the, the book is sort of the current project. What have you got lined up next? What's, what's on the cards? Obviously you're touring with Sam Bush fairly extensively in the near future, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wrapping up, um, producing a record for a band called Sprig of that. It's a really talented band from, um, the twin cities here in the States. Uh, the instrumentation is violin, tabla, and guitar. It's all instrumental. Oh, cool. Super cool. Um, so, uh, you you know, check that out when it comes out. And then uh, I have a couple of records planned. Um, there's no, like, s session time booked yet, but I, I want to make a, a vocal bluegrass record, some with me singing lead and some with guest vocalists. And then I also want to make a new a new, you know, whatever, Cascade, Revenge of Cascade, Volume 2. <laughs> Son of the Revenge of Cascade <laughs> Returns. Um, That's right. Yeah, it's back and it's mad. Do mm -hmm. you sort of feel like vocal, out for you personally, a vocal album and an instrumental album are separate things? Because obviously lots of people intermix the two, but do they feel like different projects to you? They feel like different projects to me. Yeah, I, I would like to make a vocal bluegrass record. Um, but it's a much kind of, you know, for me, at least I, I would love to make kind of, um, I guess maybe I'm, I'm just like, I hope I'm just not being like regurgitory or something, but like uh, in the same way that cascade is an homage to like tales from the acoustic planet volume two, 
bluegrass sessions. Um, I'd love to make a vocal record kind of with the same crew, but a kind of a cast a wider net of the cast of characters, but uh, to like the bluegrass album band mm. records. I mean, those are, those are some of my very favorite records. So it like it not worry about super intricate arrangements, you know, just get like great vocalists with a great band have the, with lots of character. I just need to, you know, I've been working on finding cool vocal tunes to do that, but I, I, that's, you know, and then cascade, it's not going to be called this, but you know, <laughs> volume two or whatever. Um, I, I actually have almost all of the material written. I wrote most of it through, through lockdown and COVID. I think that's really interesting about bluegrass album band stuff, because like, I, you know, I didn't grow up with bluegrass. I'm a, a British guy who grew up listening to pop music and rock music and bits of classical music. But, um, when I first became aware of the Bluegrass album band and started listening, I was coming with an instrumental hat. So I'm going to look at all these amazing players. This is going to be really cool. And the mm. thing you realize is mm-hmm. how good the singing is on those records. It's astonishing, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's so good. Yeah. And there's so many great vocalists within. Um, sorry, my cat has come <laughs> for a visit. I don't know if you can hear her purring. Uh, but uh, there's so many great vocalists in, in my crew of friends too, you know? Um, and I'd also like to pull from, you know, from generations before me as well. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. That's something to, uh, something to look forward to. Um, I couldn't let you go with asking, without asking you a question that my nine year old son, Fred wanted me to ask you. Um, we were listening, okay. we were listening to cascade in the car the other day and, um, it's the kind of car that has a screen that shows the track as you're playing it and tells you what it's called. And he wants to know if the track yeah. boss fight, uh, was inspired by gaming. Yeah, a hundred percent inspired by, by gaming. Yeah. We, um, when we tracked that in the studio, it still didn't have a name. Um, and critter played a ton of like Nintendo and super Nintendo growing up. Um, and I think he was the one who, you know, we had finished like, uh, comping it and everything. And we're just doing a final listen through and, he was like, you know, this really reminds me of the boss fight, like at the end of a video game. <laughs> well, and it is because it's. A, I, I was thinking that just the there's a, a musical feel to the kind of music you get on the boss fight in a Zelda or whatever, or you know, and it's yeah, yeah. It's, it works the title musically as well. But he loved it. He was yeah, yeah. so delighted by the fact that you might have named a track after something to do with Nintendo. Yeah, well, you know what? I grew up playing a ton of video games and, and loving the music that was in video games. Um, especially Zelda soundtracks have always been amazing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's one of my influences. Like it's absolutely one of my musical influences and, and there's amazing composers making that music. I mean, like having played the, the most recent Zelda breath of the wild, the soundtrack is incredible. That's what, this is what I love about music is that, you know, whatever you um, learn from other people and whatever you internalize and shoplift and copy and that you will only ever be, there's only ever going to be one you who has that set specific set of musical influences and interprets them in the way you do. And that's, that's the joyous thing about musicians, I think. Um, yeah. So, so finally, where should I send people for sort of information on you? I'll put some stuff in the show notes. Is it your website or Instagram or where's the most reliable source of what's going on? Well, so in terms of if you're looking to purchase the book for now, the place is on my website, which is westcorbett.com. Um, you can also buy private lessons there. Um, and you know, I also have an Instagram, uh, which I post on quite a bit. Um, if you know, all of my shows are with Sam. I have to admit, I'm bad about like updating my calendar portion of my website. You know, Isn't I need everybody. to just like put a, <laughs> I know I need to put a, like a banner up there that just says like, please go to Sam's website. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, those are, yeah. Instagram and my website are, are the best places um, to, to find that info. Excellent. Well, I'll link through to those so people can find those then. Um, thank you for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cool. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, fascinating stuff. Really enjoyed that one. Um, got quite a few interviews coming up 
over the next few weeks, lots of people have suddenly started saying yes, which is brilliant. But it means I'm going to have some pretty full weeks doing interviews. So I may sort of alternate between tunes and interviews while I've got people um, because there's some really cool people coming up. I'm really looking forward to some of these. So I will share those with you in due course. Uh, In the meantime, have a great week. I'll see you next time. Happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.